This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May of 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in. Like, you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking... I might feel some pain at some point, but with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. Hey, what's up, everyone? How you doing? Ben Kissel here from Side Stories. We are doing a special episode this week because it's Thanksgiving. Gobble, gobble, gobble. It's an interesting interview that Henry Zabrowski and I did with Kevin Anderson and Brian Herbert. You may know Brian Herbert's name from the famed Dune series. Of course, I'm sure if you listen to this show, you've heard Henry talk about Dune and you've heard my beef. Fuddlement. So we'll get a little bit of that in this interview as well. It's a great conversation. We hope you enjoy it. We hope you're having a great Thanksgiving so far and the family isn't driving you too nuts. And hopefully you're not feeling lonely or anything like that. Uh, enjoying some turkey, some tofurkey, some wine, some good grape juice, whatever the hell you're into. We hope you're enjoying yourselves and we hope that you enjoy this conversation. Live from your grave. Today we are honored to have with us and this is really, Henry, yes, what yes, a moment yes, for you. Yes, I'm so excited yes, for yes. you. I'm excited for me, and I'm excited for the audience. We are honored to be joined by Kevin Anderson and Brian Herbert. They are the authors of an upcoming book called The Dune, d- called Dune, Duke of Cal- Caladan. And I am very excited. Jesus Christ, Kissel. I nailed it, Duke. Dune, Duke of Caladan. Is that better? What yes. am I supposed to do? Uh, what? This sounds like morning talk radio in Los Angeles. What is, it going, is. What am, what's it is It is very, very similar. <laughs> what, did, what did I do wrong? Dune, Duke of Caladan. Now is you got better? it. What, I said it before. I said it right three times. I like morning talk radio. I didn't say I didn't like it. <laughs> what is uh, going on? Oh, my goodness. I am so happy that you are here with us today. Um, we, our audience has become more and more into Dune. I think you can thank the movie for that. Now I feel like there's a real Dune-assance happening <laughs> right now that is kind of in the air. Cause I am one of those, I still love the David Lynch Dune, but I know that there was a lot of problems there, but now it seems like this new Dune is a way to really bring it back around to the people but now it seems like finally people are paying attention to the books Brian have you heard have you felt as if people uh, as if there's a resurgence in the interest in Dune specifically the books well I'm I'm co-manager at my father's estate um, and I I've hired me as a writer separately and I've hired Kevin and I I probably would fire myself before I <laughs> fired him but, so but, so I, I I know I know what's happening with the books um, the sales of Dune have just exploded. I mean, upward. Yeah. I mean, it's just in- incredible. Um, we're seeing it all across. We have 19 or 20 books, and we're seeing it all all across. We also have games being developed that we're watching the Dune canon on. We're not just letting anything happen. Kevin and I are writing uh, a three-part uh, graphic novel plus some short stories with Boom. Right. Uh, with the Duke of Caladan, which just came out last week, um, that's our, I believe it's our 15th Dune novel that we've written over the past around 21 or so years. Nice. Uh, and our first one was in 1999, uh, House of Atreides. And all of the ones since then have been uh, national, international bestsellers. So we've, we've really kind of kept things coming out and the Dune fan base has been uh, building and we got generations of people reading not just our our new books, they're they're kind of like gateways into reading the Frank Herbert books. Right, and sales on the Frank Herbert books have just 
skyrocketed. And we've been kind of watching. I, I send Brian a little scan every month when I get my science fiction bestseller list thing that this the original 1964 version of Dune is number one bestseller everywhere. And it's been you know, That's so cool. Just astonishing. Well, it's one of the most important books ever written. As far as I'm concerned, in, ter- in terms of sci-fi, I believe that it, it the idea of the because I was reading a little bit on the uh, an essay that Frank Herbert had written about the idea of the fallacy of believing in the Superman. Like I've been trying to explain to people that that's what the core of the original trilogy, which seemed to have all been written in one go. Right, that he kind of pieced those first three books together, but it's about this idea, which I think was revolutionary at the time, despite this, even all the very on the forefront ideas about ecological problems. There, there's this base of this idea of like if Superman was president, things would be really bad. Well, Dad said that it would be dangerous to follow a hero uh, because they could a charismatic hero they could lead you off the edge of a cliff, and he liked to give the example. Frank Herbert was a Republican speechwriter in the 50s, oh. and so he, his, bad, his bad examples were all Democrats. So um, <laughs> his bad example was the very charismatic John Kennedy, who he liked personally. He actually liked, he liked him personally, but he said that kind of a leader could lead the followers right off the edge of a cliff. So your dad was more of a Barry Goldwater supporter. I didn't say that. Good. Thank you, Kissel. <laughs> Don't pawn him in a corner. <laughs> what are you You're putting words it? in my mouth. I am not putting words in my own mouth, let alone somebody else's. No, I, I would. He was a he was a Lincoln Republican, maybe even a a, a Rockefeller Republican. Sure, he was very much in the middle, but leaning right. Um, so um, it's it's amazing that people. When I tell people that in the audience, they about drop their jaws. But yeah, he he was an environmentalist. He led. Right. Uh, students uh, d- down the freeway and he was wearing a beard. He looked like a Democrat. Well, and of course, you know, Republicans and Democrats, that's an ever moving ideology within both parties. And you never know uh, what he would be today when it comes to the books, Dune, And when it comes to what you guys have been working on for so long, why do you think they have had such a long shelf life? It is so rare to create something that lasts, especially now. Everything comes and goes before you even realize that it was here. It is now gone. And people are like, you weren't into the fad of planking? It's like, I didn't know it was a thing. Why do you think Dune, as an entity, has been able to survive? I mean, what are we at, 50 years now? Yeah, but it's not just science fiction. It's it's actually mainstream. It's, it's about people. I mean, here you have this universe where there are no legal computers. So it's about, it's about human beings, it's about people. It's become part of our society. I mean, you, you can read it as Paul Atreides' heroic journey when a lot of our younger ch- uh, fans do that. But there's also the environmentalism, the, the women's issues, religious issues, uh, political. Don't, don't, it's very dangerous to follow, you just follow people without thinking. Absolutely. Kevin and I were talking at a bookstore in San Francisco, right down on Market Street. And there was a man sitting quietly off to the side. He was an older gentleman. And we had this large, packed, enthusiastic audience. And we were, I think we were talking about Paul of Dune and it's one of our sequels. And this man stood up at the end and he said, uh, Mr. Herbert, I've, I've been sitting over here listening, but I've never read Dune. I've never heard about Dune. Why should I even read Dune? And, and I said, well, if, if you don't read Dune, you're missing part of our culture. It's that. Yeah. It's that much integrated into our culture. And Kevin even asked a busboy one time. Go ahead, Kevin, on that one. Well, this was this was really funny. So before our, our very first one came out, House of Trades, a Bantam Books published it. And they had because Frank Herbert um, had ended his series with uh, Chapter House Dune and it sort of ended on a cliffhanger. And then many years later, Brian and I picked up and we started doing some prequels and bantam books bought it so we're at we're at this uh, mexican restaurant in santa fe just meeting with the deputy publisher and and you know brian and i are you know, we are very intense very enthusiastic about dune but yeah. here's this um here's the publisher who's you know she she gets that they bought this big book and it's coming out and they're going to a, a science fiction award ceremony and i kind of looked her in the eye and i said you need to understand that you're not just publishing a science fiction book that's a, like a big science fiction book. This is Dune. This is a cultural phenomenon. This is really important. This is more than just a science fiction book. Everybody who's ever read 
any science fiction has read Dune. This is really important. And and mm. right then the busboy walks up with a tray of ice water for us. And just, I turned to him and I said, like you, you've read Dune, haven't you? And this kid just goes, oh yeah, Dune, Dune, Messiah, children, I love it. And he just goes on and on. And the, the publisher, <laughs> I watched this light bulb go on over her head because yeah. <laughs> this was like, I can't, and they thought that I had staged that somehow. Right. Also, this publisher can splurge a little bit. Get you some Diet Cokes. Yeah. What's uh, going on yeah. with this <laughs> So it's. But that was just the hey, thing. Kevin that, doesn't need any more caffeine. <laughs> <laughs> but helps. It gives you the edge. I honestly have a question about that. Like, how do you? The end of Chapter House Dune obviously ends on a cliffhanger. All of the Golas are all children, which I think is a, a fun thing that I think most of the movies miss, where it's like, uh, Paul Atreides was very young. But how do you, the, the end of Chapter House Dune, you have all of your father's notes. How do you translate this? Like, how do you go from continuing this, like, very famous, like, storyline, and, and just you just jump off? Like, do you, like, how do you know that you're staying true? to your father's dream. I just want to say something briefly and then give Kevin most of the airtime here. But I, I thought that when Frank Herbert finished Chapter House Dune, he did this incredible dedication to my mother. Yes. And they were a writing team. And she had died while he was writing the book. And she mm. died in Hawaii. And I thought since they were a writing team, that it should end right there. That was my emotional feeling about it. Yeah. And so for years, I, I did write the biography, Dreamer of Dune, about his life and their love story and the origins of Dune. But I, I thought the series should end right there. Um, and then Kevin sent me a letter. I didn't know who Kevin was, but I, I soon learned what an enthusiastic Dune fan he was and what a great writer. So it's, it's been a really good team. We've, we've had like a half hour argument. Then Kevin apologized and we moved on. Let's <laughs> see. I mean, Brian's Brian's emotional thing was right. I mean, that was just such a perfect ending to Chapter House Dune. But as a Dune fan, the you could see the story isn't over. I mean, it's clearly Luke, I am your father, and that's where the where the book ends. It's huge cliffhanger. Uh, but when Brian and I first started talking, uh, I mean, the the original idea was we were just going to finish that story that Frank Herbert had had left unfinished. But we, it, it, so many years had passed. I, I don't remember, Brian. I think it was 14 years since your dad had passed away when we actually started. It, it's something wow. along those. Yeah, pretty, pretty close. Uh, so we felt that it wouldn't really be the best thing to just jump right in and say, oh, by the way, here's the last chapter that that you haven't even remembered for the past 10 years. We We found there was so much backstory to tell and we really wanted to introduce people to uh, we wanted to bring a lot more readers into dune and because right. we just love this universe and uh, we didn't talk much about my background before i met brian but i'd written a bunch of my own books but also i had done a whole lot of work for lucasfilm and star wars i had done 50 some star wars projects i had wow. millions and millions of star wars readers and a lot of those readers followed us into the new dune books and then we sort of like like sitting there with a the gravelly voice on the counter like come here kid here's some candy it's called dune and then you're gonna go and <laughs> <laughs> that's good grooming that's very positive grooming. what brian and i did first was we wrote a trilogy called house atreides house harkonnen and house carino which is the the story of young Duke Leto, Lady Jessica, Baron Harkonnen, how Crown Prince Shaddam becomes Emperor Shaddam, and sort of like the generation before. And that got everybody who had read Dune, the original Dune, uh, kind of back into the universe. And as we, right. after we had read Frank's notes for Dune 7, which was, I think it was a seven-page outline or something that he had a bunch of other notes, um, we there's so much historical underpinnings that that we sort of needed to lay down with the whole war against the thinking machines, the Butlerian Jihad, how this universe came to be this far future medieval society with no computers and and uh, you know the Bene Gesserit Sisterhood and the Swordmasters and the Sook Doctors, and so we wrote that whole trilogy, all kind of building up to to building the audience into this grand finale and then amazing. Frank Herbert left 
10,000 years worth of history. So we're now that we're exploring some other parts of that with, uh, again, Ben, what was the title of the book? Well, I'm talking to Brian Herbert and Kevin Anderson. They're the writers of a book, Dune, the Duke of Caladan. Now we got it. I wanted to riff off what Kevin said. When Kevin and I are working together, we, we kind of riff off each other like a jazz performance. Well, you know, he was talking about where we were going to start the series. And we talked about either Dune 7, which would be the sequel to uh, Chapter House Dune, which we ultimately wrote as two novels, or we could have gone back to the Butlerian Jihad. But we decided to go to these the House series uh, three, 35 years before Dune. But that really kind of is a microcosm of, of really what Dune is all about. You can start at like 10 different starting points. And right. when people ask me, well, Mr. Herbert, where should I start? Well, I say read Dune if you can. Uh, read it. Uh, that's the best starting place. But wait, there's other starting places. And wait, there's more, you know. So wow. it, it's an incredible universe. Um, you can just dip into it any anywhere uh, that you please. Can I pitch? Can I pitch an idea to you guys to pitch? Can oh, I you're, you you're doing idea? the elevator pitch is, now, Henry? I, I was thinking about this the other day. Is there a way to do a young, scrappy version of a of young of Lido 2 in high school like or in college trying to get along? Like we, there's something about him, half worm, half man. Like once he's in transition, about him trying to discover like how mean I'm going to be, but also how difficult is it? How difficult is it to date for a god emperor who has no penis? Um, uh, no, I have to get off. Okay, the great job, Henry. That was my shot. Great that job. Was my shot. Uh, for nine hundred two one zero. Yeah, exactly. Or One Tree Hill, or a whole series of great, great things starring James Vanderbeek, uh, which I think was Varsity Blues. I want to go back to what what Henry had mentioned earlier, though. That this is something in the the Children of Dune miniseries. Uh, young Leto the Second was played by James McAvoy. Mm-hmm. Okay, the character Leto the Second in the book Children of Dune is eight years old. Wow. James McAvoy is not eight years old yeah, no. as at the time, but he looked like 22 or 25 or something like that. So they, they ageified the, but it's so much more impressive of an eight year old doing, jumping through the sand. Like when he does it, when he first attacks, when he goes back and he first, like he's discovered by the, the, the rebel group and he is defying them. The idea of like an eight year old, like that haunting image in my mind of an eight-year-old acting like a thousands year old like collection of dictators and thought to me is really really interesting and Mm -hmm. if you've met child actors they act like that (laughs) well alia you know the the actress that played alia in the david lynch movie my mother met her and and she said this is this is a genius this is a an adult in a in a child's body, and that's really perfect for the character of Alia, yeah. too. When it comes to just the process, and I know Henry will have more questions about the inner workings of the world of Dune, but when it comes to the process of writing something like this with such an expansive world, you mentioned how the audience is like, where do I start? From an audience perspective, where do you start? How do you begin to blow out this and expand this world that uh, that uh, Frank Herbert began in the early 70s? How has that process been for you guys? Because you can take this anywhere. How do you ground it? Well, the, the, the first thing to do is, I think Mark Twain said, you get your facts straight. So I spent about a year putting together a, um, a Dune Concordance that is not published and we're not going to publish it. Ah. it it's 600 pages, single space. And I actually got wow. like repetitive motion problems because I, what I would do <laughs> is I would highlight something from a book and I drag it over to another document and I formed this concordance. So we had all the descriptions of Lady Jessica, Duke Leto. We had the Benny Gesserit history, uh, little references to, to situations that Frank Herbert didn't write much about, like the Norma Senva really, you know, get, got the faith uh, the, Holt space system with Holtzman engines going and not Venport, you know, so a, a kind of timely, wasn't it? A woman not getting credit and a man took the credit. So right. we'd take, we'd find little details like that and we, we would expand on that. And there's many other details that we have expanded on, but sometimes it would be in an appendix to Dune. Sometimes it would be in Frank Herbert's notes. Um, and sometimes it would, it would come out of our head, but we knew 
we, we knew how it should fit into Frank Herbert's universe. We, we, we knew the material. We were ready for the exam. Wow. So everything tied back into Dune in one way or another. You guys made sure that that happened with the, doing the, the research up top. Yeah. And now the concordance that I did is all six books that Frank Herbert wrote. Wow. So it's all it's all into one one document, big document. I mean, that seems to me like prepping before you paint a house by being like, you got to put tape on everything to make sure you don't mess up. And that really is more difficult than the painting part. So it seems like you did the due diligence, got all the information, and then we're able to go from there. Right. Plus, I spent five years before that writing a biography of Frank Herbert. And that meant going back and meeting people that knew wow. him. And I remember interviewing one man in Tacoma who was uh, – no, uh, he, he was an uncle of my dad's, and he said that Frank Herbert scared us when he was nine years old because he was just like we were talking about with Ollie or maybe with Leto the second. He he was a, a brilliant, and he would walk around with a backpack full of Shakespeare books, and he read the whole the whole the whole bunch of them. But wow. my uncle said that he he frightened us. He was so intelligent that he frightened us. I imagine that would be very scary to have Frank Herbert as a father, honestly, <laughs> just because his mind is so intense and just being like. Dad, I I made a a hand turkey today in school, and he's just like, you need to learn about sand. Read, read Dreamer of Dune. There's, I won't say it again. Just read Dreamer of Dune, but the biography that I wrote of him, and it's I, about my journey to understand this brilliant man. It's on my way. To, it's on its way to me, literally. Yeah. Right now, I can't wait to read it. I mean, honestly, that must have been such a trip to research your own father like that. And did you at some point during the research disconnect from the fact that you are you are his son? At some point, were you able to just look at him like all of us are trying to look at our fathers like human beings so we don't judge them so harshly and just be like, they all make mistakes. They're just people. Were you able to sort of figure out your father in a way that uh, most children perhaps can't? Yeah, and I was also able to figure out myself and see some of my own pettiness and how I contributed to situations. So right. it, it really gave me a more balanced look at it. Um, and um, it was it was a great a great journey. I mean, it was a, I guess in a sense it was a heroic journey trying to figure yeah. out your father, especially a man of that intelligence who was an IQ of maybe 190, Jeez. which is higher than Marilyn Monroe, who had a high IQ. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, and he looks and he looked just as great in a dress. I loved him when he would stand over a subway grate and the dress would blow up just over his head. And Me we and could Frank. see those great Herbert balls. He's got those beautiful legs. <laughs> from, from what I've seen is that Frank Herbert had a higher IQ than Einstein. Wow. This guy was really smart. Wow. Well, what he did so well, I think, in the original books is that idea of what you said now that you're fulfilling, you're filling it out with the concordance, but dropping little seeds of ideas that are obviously massive that just fill the world of Dune and make it feel like it's been there for thousands of years. And that a lot of the history is kind of like already assumed that, you know, kind of as a reader and you kind of just have to keep running. Like as you go, like being in the universe of Dune 24 seven, do you feel like lost in it? Does it ever feel like that? Does it ever feel like a a burden almost, or it's like this idea that you're like everywhere is Dune? If you read a murder mystery, there's all kinds of little clues laid, and the resolution of that mystery, the reader says, "Oh yeah, that's right." So what Kevin and I try to do is we want the parts to fit in, and the readers will say, "Oh yeah, that's that's how it should be. It fits. Mm. That's right." Well, and one of the things that we're astounded by is, I mean, how many words he wrote and how complex these things are. And remember, this is before Microsoft Word and doing a global search and replace. Right. This is before running, like like searching for what color were Count Fenring's eyes. I can't remember that. This is all like on a <laughs> real manuscript and real like typing <laughs> time and it's all in his head. And And one of the Look, I, I can't even tell you how many times I've read Dune, probably 18 or 19 times. But just in the, as we mentioned, Brian and I did a a scene-by-scene definitive graphic novel adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune. Can't wait. Wow. The first, first volume comes up from Abrams in, in a month or something like that. Um, beautifully illustrated. So it's volume one, volume two, and volume three. And we just, well, we finished and delivered the script for volume two. So we're two thirds of the way through the novel. And while writing the script, 
I mean, you're we're going page by page trying to convert what's on the page into a, a an illustrative panel. Yeah. And there have been times that it just sort of stopped us cold to go. I never noticed that before. That little detail ties back to this other little detail that I didn't notice either, but it ties into this other detail. And it just kind of like mind blown. You can't believe that that he had all of that in his head, all interconnected, wow. all there. And the uh, I think Ben said something earlier about writing the all first three books just in one big uh, fell swoop. And that's, he wrote Dune in the, I think it was published in a volume form in 1964 and Dune Messiah was 71 or 72 and children of Dune was 1976. So there was, there was a long time in between those first three books. And in fact, a trivial trivia note that children of Dune was the very, very first science fiction novel that said science fiction on the spine to ever hit the New York times bestseller list. Wow, that is Children insane. of Dune is my favorite. Children of Dune is my favorite of the of the series. I mean, God Emperor, just because I see myself within Leto the second, um, and I I appreciate. I remember when Children came out, uh, Frank Herbert, my dad said it's a runaway bestseller, which means it's selling more than they than they printed. That's <laughs> and great. so Kevin and I had that on a on a smaller scale actually with with Dune House Atreides. It also was a kind of a runaway bestseller out, out doing what they'd printed. But Frank Herbert really hit it with that Children of Dune. It just went went big. And then other science fiction writers, then they got bestsellers after that. But Frank Herbert yeah. started it. My sister is the best gift giver I've ever met of any person. It's Jackie Zabrowski. She shops all year thinking about her family and friends and puts little things aside for their birthdays and Christmases. I have no idea how she does it. I don't know how she do it, but guess what? She always wins Mother's Day, but not this year. I'm coming back. Ready to win Mother's Day and cement your reputation as the best gift giver in the family? I'm taking the crown. All right, give the moms in your life an aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. I mean this. We have the aura frame up in my home. We absolutely love it. I can put photos on it very, very easily through the app. It's fun to do. And the memories keep cycling and I get emotional. And we filled it with pictures of Carmi and Wendy. And that is not sad. That is celebratory. So you should try it. It's honestly a really good product. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code LEFT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Finding work-life balance can be tough, but Squarespace gives you the tools to reach your goals and have time to celebrate. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. With the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint, you can select from curated layout and styling options to create a personalized website optimized for every device. Get your website discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools. Plus, make checkout easy for customers with easy-to-use payment tools. And with Squarespace AI, you can explain what your site is about, choose your tone, enter what you need, and get auto-generated text. And that helps you save time. I know I'm sitting on about two literal wheelbarrows filled with horse pics. Now, part of the issue has been is a lot of these pictures are getting stopped at customs because some of them do depict various world leaders in horse-like circumstances that seems to be pinging a lot of these custom agents' accounts. Now, so what I've done to do is like, so while I'm trying to work on hand smuggling these horse pics over various country borders, I then also have time because Squarespace is doing all the other ad work for me to go and work on my killdozer at home. So thank you, Squarespace, for allowing me to diversify in the best way possible for this country. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial when you're ready to launch. Go to squarespace.com slash left to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Yeah, we do. Do you love saving money? Oh my God, you bet. Then Philo may be your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. That's amazing. 
No contracts, no commitments, no hassles. It's just a better way to watch TV. Get with it, people. Philo has an unlimited DVR for one year. Save all your favorite shows so you can watch on your own schedule. Philo allows for multiple profiles and multiple streams, meaning that your children or significant other can't ruin your queue. Never miss a minute of shows like, oh, RuPaul's Drag Race. You're going to watch it. You're going to love it. You're going to get involved with it. And it's an extravaganza. You're going to love it. With Philo, you can start watching in seconds for less money and less hassle. Try it yourself with your seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash left. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash L-E-F-T to get 50% off your first month. Can I have I have a question just about science fiction in general when it comes to how it relates to, you know, modern reality or whatever, whatever it is we're living in today. Why is science fiction a great way to explore just sort of society as a whole? Like, what do you think about what does science fiction allow you to explore in a way that might um in a way that might intrigue somebody to like, you know, be interested in society. Like how, like what are some of the liberties and some of the freedoms that science fiction allows when it comes to explaining our, our world and specifically power constructs and, and politics as we were talking about earlier and all of that. Well, I'll give, I'll, I'll give Kevin a little segue here. Frank Herbert said that it, it gave him elbow room for the imagination. Mm. Well, one of the, one of the challenging things, I, I wouldn't suggest a science fiction writer should write a story about how the world reacts to a brand new pandemic showing up. <laughs> I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> My wife was also a best-selling author. Like every night we watch the news and we just shake our heads and go, if we wrote this in a book, the critics would tear us to pieces. Oh my <laughs> God. I, I completely, unplausible, not realistic. So when you're writing in science fiction, you can explore these these thought experiments and you can you can go, well, if this if this big pivotal event happens, how is society going to react? How are how is science going to change? How are our politics, everything going to change? And you can basically run an experiment and, and play with it and let people you sort of do a test run so that when something really similar happens in real life, they go, Wait a second. I read 1984. I'm not ever going to believe propaganda from the government again. Right. (laughs) Exactly. We've seen John Carpenter's They Live. We know. Yeah. So that that lets that that gives you the freedom in science fiction. But uh, that doesn't mean people listen. Well, we'll take a real situation and we'll exaggerate it or extrapolate it. Um, So we, we begin with little realities that we see and we push them in, in into an extreme. Can I ask a question about writing mechanics? Because I am an undisciplined writer. I've only written, I write the exciting world of writing mechanics. Isn't this, this is a new segment we're working on. I write a novel at the auto shop or something like that. I'm covered in oil. Is this wrong? Am I not supposed to be covered in oil? Um, But I my the idea of writing a glossary for your own book. Like, I think that the, when I have people that are new to Dune, the first thing that they always say to me is just like, holy shit, there's a dictionary attached to this. And I'm like, <laughs> yes, there is. It's important for you to get into the world. But how does one create such like get into the world of the world of creation so deep that they're making their own language like a Tolkien. Like, how do you get into that mind space? Like, do you find yourself like having to bend like as like now continuing the Dune universe? Do you find yourself like having to invent new language, new things as you go? And like, how do like how does it how do you wrap your brain around it? You see, that's that's why I'm on the phone. I'm not on Zoom because you would see that my head is turned into a Guild Navigator head. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would just like to point out that in the Duke of Caledon, we considered putting in five pages of poetry in Fremen language just so that the readers could get the experience <laughs> like in Lord of the Rings. Hell yeah. Yeah, the Silmarillion. <laughs> no, I do have to point out, though, that when you're doing the glossary, that's like the last, last thing. I mean, it's after the book is already finished and written. And, and if you write a glossary, glossary you're going through proofing and go oh there's a name i got to put in the glossary and there's a name but if you look at at uh, frank herbert's glossary it's called terminology the imperium it's like that that was part of his world building he did a lot of these entries in the glossary that 
you can't even really find what it's relating to in the book. No, no. Off on a tangent on certain things, which is cool for Brian and me because then it gives us ideas to write back into the story. Right. So. But so he just would come up. So you just like, I mean, I don't mean to be like simplified so much, but you're like, okay, I need a thing with the pointy thing. What's the pointy thing called? Gom Jabbar. I'm just going to write that down. And then he writes it down. And then he has to decide afterwards, like after writing it, then you go back and define. Or are you, is this already like a set thing? Because I know that Frank Herbert worked on the original trilogy for years before he even began writing it. So I imagine he maybe brainstormed that beforehand, but it's just kind of crazy to me that you can just be like, there's a new word done. Well, you know, I was going to write some scenes that involved the, the drug Sappho, but Frank Herbert or Samuda, but Frank Herbert had set it up to where it had to be triggered by music. And so I was kind of yes. digging through the terminology of the Imperium. And I found that it had to do with burning Ilaka wood. And it was that was like the second stage crystal crystallization and all and all that to get to Samuda. But the first stage of burning was the Alaka drug. So I switched it and I, I didn't want the music to in, in, activate the drug. So I just went with the Alaka uh, mm. drug that Frank Herbert had in the terminology of the Imperium. See, the first stage of the Alaka Wood drug is only triggered by country and Western music. <laughs> <laughs> Normally, that's uh, I, you say Alaka Wood, we say four fingers of bourbon. Right, Kissel? Absolutely. Five in my case, depending on the mood. Okay, have we gotten obscure enough? No, no, this is, uh, honestly, I feel like our audience is begging for more obscurity. Absolutely. No, I mean, that must be insane when it comes to creating language, when it comes to creating dialogue. How is that, um, and again, kind of, I don't know, I'm not in the world as, as nearly as much as Henry is, obviously, but when it comes to creating language, how has that changed how you view the world in general? When it comes to dialogue, when it comes to different, we always, there's always an ever-changing flow when it comes to how the the youth they're talking or whatever language changes it expresses the same thing over and over again how has how has that altered how you view uh, just how we communicate in general i mean you guys are the gods you're i, I think you're suggesting that gurney halleck with his ballast set should be doing rap music honestly I, hey, that's, that's a great. good way to make it viral if we want to make it viral we could take a man who looks like gurney Halleck. i could see kevin anderson writing some great hip-hop lyrics well, well no, we are Go ahead, Brian, and then I'll, I'll jump in. I was going to say we're, we're we're not we're not necessarily adapting ourselves to the hip culture. <laughs> I, I believe so. Well, and and in fact, if you look at the original Dune, that he's got a very very formal, very medieval language, and that's one of the other reasons why I think it has really um, endured for so long because. Our language really changes. What imagine if Frank had written it in the people talking in the slang of the early sixties. Yep. It would sound ridiculous and outdated now. Yeah, being like that flips my wig. <laughs> that, I totally dig that. Very, very careful about, you know, using in our dialogue, using anything that is very twenty ten or twenty twenty or, yes. or ninety-nine or whatever, because and that's that's another thing uh, we touched on it before when Brian was describing that there wasn't technology, but there's when Frank Herbert was publishing Dune, one of the other biggest names in science fiction was Isaac Asimov mm -hmm. and Isaac Asimov. Well, I, I, I grew up reading. I really enjoyed all this stuff, but it doesn't, it doesn't have the staying power because it was all about technology and the technology. Mm. When you read Isaac Asimov's iRobot from 1950 whatever seven it's ancient it, it, you read, read it and you just go they're on a starship bridge using slide rules <laughs> it's true and frank herbert consciously didn't rely on technology where i mean think about it if you were if you're writing a, a young adult modern day kids having trouble in high school right think about 10 years ago you wrote the most cutting edge because you had a 15 year old daughter or something like that and your book is all about how much time she spends on her desktop computer watching yep. space, yeah. right? And you're just like, this is already, I'm, I'm out of this now. What, it's over. But that's why Dune has a certain timelessness. That's what's really, I think, why it's, again, so popular. And uh, another thing that I think features into it is the fact that the characters in it, for 
what I think a lot of people view as like intense sci-fi is actually the, the characters are very relatable and they are they are each one people I recognize. Even Baron Harkonnen, like there's in the book in the movie, he's way more of a cartoonish villain. In the book, he actually has like motive like he had and it's like the when he's like i feel sorrow for how he must die like like the way he feels about like upset like he's upset that duke leto went down like that like in a, which is a it's a, a nuanced view so the whole series that frank herbert laid out is all about human beings um computers are illegal they're used by the Bene Gesserit, but it's all about human beings so if you look at the great schools the Bene Gesserit are trying to breed for this perfect superhuman being, which as Frank Herbert said himself could be a fallacy. Uh, you've got the Mentats that are human computers, basically. You've got the Navigators that ex- expand and fold space. So it's all about human potential. And then on a much smaller level, you have the individual characters um, that are very relatable. So it, it's about people. I mean, right. you don't have computers in here that are the size of planets that were written about in the 1950s, Frank Herbert neatly set them aside and didn't say how big they were. Right. No, it kind of carries. Boy, Texas Pete is a sauce and allows you to sauce like you mean it. It's what people gather around. It's generosity in its simplest form, and it's a swagger people have who know what's good. Each Texas Pete hot sauce is packed with bold, balanced flavor. This signature tanginess is what makes it a legendary hot sauce that can be used on just about anything. It's been at the center of dinner table since 1929 and is still heating things up today. You're definitely going to want to try Every flavor. The original hot sauce has a famous secret blend of fermented peppers. The hotter hot sauce is three times hotter than the original, and not for the faint of heart. Sabor by Texas Pete adds authentic Mexican flavor, and their dust-dry seasoning matches the flavor of the original hot sauce and a flavorful dry rub. Tell you what, the other day I was having myself a good old refried bean burrito, and I wanted a little bit of kick to my morning, so I got myself some cha, Texas Pete sriracha sauce, and I smothered those refried beans and that cheese and them eggs in a whole bunch of cha, and it started off my day correct. Texas Pete, sauce like you mean it. Visit TexasPete.com and use the store locator to find Texas Pete products as well as purchase sauces and get recipe inspiration. And use the promo code PODCAST. 24 for 20% off at texaspeat.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It says here I have to talk about something I need to get off my chest, and I guess I can share it here. I, I eat mayonnaise for fun. It's a hobby of mine, and it's an addiction. And it's a daily weight on my life. How much I need whipped egg whites and oil crammed into my veins as soon as I wake up. And a lot of people carry around a lot of different stressors, big and small. Some people are presidents. Some people are soldiers. Some people have to eat mayonnaise, especially with hard-boiled eggs, which is what I eat for lunch. But I guess I should share that in therapy. Because therapy is a safe place to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And what I do is I just add eggs if I have mayonnaise left over. I just continue to add the eggs. But if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I hope they can help me. My God. I hope they can help me. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash last pod today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp! H-E-L-P dot com slash last pod. Hi, did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. That's one of my favorite things about it. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. 
Uh, personally, I'm in the middle of re-landscaping my yard. I like to do it myself because I called up a landscaper to see how much it cost, and it was absolutely insane. Plus, I love dirt. I love getting my hands in the dirt, and I love planting things myself. And fast-growing trees has given me some wonderful plants that I can use. Like, I got this uh, Texas sage. It's purple. I've dug up a whole bunch of horrible bushes and shrubs up in front of my window and in front of my house and put some purple Texas sage up there, and it's going to thrive, and it's going to look real good. And I didn't even have to go to a nursery to buy it. It came to my house. Now, this spring, they have the best deals online, up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code LEFT at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code LEFT at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code LEFT. Offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Do you Have you ever, um, in your travel, met anyone who believes themselves to be like a quote-unquote honored matra? <laughs> Kevin, you remember that, that little girl? I was just going to say the, the woman who said she was Dune, the, the Ray Bradbury. Yeah. Described that. Yeah, that's it. It was just like in Fahrenheit 451, where each person was a book at the end. This woman was, I guess it was, it was a young woman. She was Dune. She knew it word for word. It was incredible. Wow. Oh, no, I was talking to, it's like some woman just showing up, just being like, I'm going to control this whole room of people with my vagina. It sounds very, very scary to me. The honored matrons. <laughs> well, there are, are such there a are places where that can happen, Henry. There are it's certain true. establishments. It's true. Where I that just exists. love. I love the war between the honored matrons and the Benny Jesuit. I just love the two of them. Well, what it, that's what what is so interesting. What I've been picking up on here is how Frank was able to make this timeless because he didn't. He understood that the technology of the time was going to be moved on, and it's going to move. It, it will move on. And it's going to move on fast. You know, computer, freaking, uh, you know, calculators used to be massive, you know, 10 by 10 things. And now, of course, our, our phones are a thousand billion times more powerful than uh, than anything we could imagine in the early 70s. So do but you, the, that's why the future is human, which is kind of what he shows. And do you think that was something that Frank, because in the world of sci fi, uh, you know, obviously, again, you can sort of offshoot into all these different directions, all of these interesting technological things and advancements and all this, you know, but when it comes to keeping it human why do you think frank was why do you how do you think he got there and how did you guys sort of expand on that because it is so easy to get lost in so much of the other aspects of the sci-fi world to keep it human that must have been that that's kind of difficult to do it it rely you have to be very creative to keep it sort of based in that sort of reality he would take real situations that he saw such as charismatic leaders like Mussolini is just one example. Right. And just the entire nation gets, goes off the edge of a cliff. But he would take these examples and, hey, let's, let's put that into this science fiction book. And let's, instead of just a, a country or just instead of a planet, let's make it a whole galaxy. Um, and here's this charismatic leader and billions of people have died in Dune Messiah, the sequel to Dune, where Frank Herbert flipped the hero mythology of Dune and a lot of people didn't understand that. National Lampoon made it, uh, they kind of lambasted it. But ultimately, people started to understand it because people, the Frank Herbert went out and, and had to explain his, his second book. But um, it's, wow. um, it's quite a, an exercise in, in, um, in psychology with Frank Herbert, too. Yeah. He knew a woman that had studied under Carl Gustav Jung um, in, uh, in Europe in the 1930s in, in Zurich. I believe it was. And so Frank Herbert had access to this woman's notes and her name was Irene Slattery. And so he studied Jungian psychology. So you'll see all this stuff immersed into his characters. And really, when you're developing a character and the relationships, it's all about psychology anyway. But on a little bigger scale, Frank Herbert liked to end, like, for example, he ended Dune. He said, I like to end the novel with detritus, with little bits and pieces of the characters still clinging to my readers. And so they want to go back and read it. And what do you know when you go back and read Dune, like a classic novel or, or even like seeing a classic movie, you see things you never saw before. You can read right. it. Dad used to say you could read it 
as an ecological novel. You could read it for the religion. You could read it for the politics, for the women's issues. Women are running everything by his fifth and sixth books. Yes. Or, you know, interestingly, take some of those beautiful, beautiful paragraphs that he wrote and set them up like a poem. It's poetry. It's just wow. beautiful. Can I ask a question? I feel like God Emperor is the least talked about of the books. I really do think of the main sextology, the, that is the one that is least broached because I wonder if it's because God Emperor is, I'm not going to say a sympathetic look, but it's, an, it's a look at the inner workings of what would you'd call a dictator and seeing like this idea of like a sympathetic dictator. It's interesting. I remember talking to my dad. He lived in Port Townsend, Washington on the Olympic Peninsula at the time. And I was talking with dad about God Emperor of Dune when he was writing it. And he said, I'm writing a love story such as never been written before, you know? And so it's this love story of this person that becomes a monster and he, he loves a human and but it, it starts the, the novel starts out with all this great action and then you have all this non-action in the middle of it and then it ends with action um and really it's a bridging novel between two trilogies so you have dune dune messiah and children of dune is one trilogy then dune messiah is a bridging novel and then he intended to write heretics of dune chapter house dune and one sequel dune seven that he called it so, so really, God Emperor of Dune stands on its own. Um, a lot of a lot of people like it the like it the best of all the sequels. It's it really is kind of a touching love story, and I love the the reoccurrence, the idea of a Duncan Idaho that keeps coming back, keeps coming back, and being like. I started thinking in my mind that, mind that that's like the exteriorization of what used to be the human part of Leto the second and he's kind of keeping it on purpose. Cause I think that's a big question. I also get a lot of being like, why is Duncan Idaho there? And it's like, well, I think he's doing it to kind of keep it, to keep a touch in. And then when he meets what he tries to make his wife, it's very, very difficult for him. But man, when he fucking kills all those people in the town square, he starts <laughs> flipping around. That's one of my favorite scenes in the entire book series when he's just like, oh, you guys don't think I can move. And then flip, 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 flip. That's sweet. I don't know why I'm doing this. It's not even a question. I'm just talking at you. He also got letters from readers, and they said, why did you kill off Duncan Idaho? So it's sort of like Stephen King with his Misery, the book Misery, <laughs> where in the movie Kathy Bates, you know, wants that, doesn't want Misery killed. So some of the fans didn't want Duncan Idaho killed. So Frank Herbert brought him back and he didn't do it, you know, didn't do it the same way that Lucas did it. <laughs> so Frank Herbert had his own way. But also remember with uh, with uh, Leto the Second, who's this horrible tyrant, one of the things that he says, I mean, he's horrible tyrant and killing these people. He says, I'm doing all this so that you will never, ever, ever let someone like me happen again. Interesting. Yeah, he does a 2,000-year reign, the golden path. No one understands but him. He's trying to do it for everybody. That's what they don't understand. He's trying to help everyone. What do you think uh, Mr. Frank Herbert would think about 2020? Do you feel as if he saw this? What do you think he would think about if he woke up right now and was like, yep, this is just like I wrote it, exactly as I scripted this to go? Or do you think he'd be more shocked by the... uh, I'm just going to say stupidity of humanity. I, I think you'd I think you'd see him sending out a lot of tweets that were highly intelligent and philosophical and and all encompassing. Maybe reaching across the aisles instead of all this these people shouting at each other, Ugh. shouting over each other, and not understanding each other. I think he would find a common ground. I mean, look at some of the things that he combined in Dune. You've got religions like the Orange Catholic Bible. You've got uh, Sufi or you got the uh, Buddhist Islamic uh, combined. So I think he saw basically the good in, in all kinds of different things. And he would yeah. see that carried forward. So he would want people to find a common ground and not have it as it is now. Yeah, I, I completely agree. We need to do that. That's for damn I can sure. definitely see Trump in a big cart. Like being driven in one of those automatic carts. <laughs> Honestly, I really think that he'd much approve that. You much rather do that than walk. <laughs> Brian, uh, I want to ask you a question because I've never asked you this before. Did Frank was Frank optimistic about humans or pessimistic? I I, I think it was both. It's the pessimism and the optimism fighting against each other. It's like your right. good and your bad side fighting. 
So he, that's what it's all about. To, to what is the definition of, of being human? Well, it's all about basically that of trying to overcome your bad side, but it's always going to be there. Um, and it, it kind of makes us interesting. It makes us more interesting. I mean, if we were all, um, like I, there's, there's a certain religious persuasion, I won't say it specifically, but they write these histories of their families. And if you look in, in the history, there's nothing bad in there about anybody. It's like they whitewashed all the right. interesting people that were bank robbers and everything. So Frank Herbert understood that we are more interesting with our good and our bad. Yeah. And, it, and it's an ongoing thing. And we're going to go forward. And, and sometimes you do bad things for good reasons. You know, yeah, that's very complex. But that's where I think I'm starting to see a line of thought in a lot of the books of like this idea of because Leto won with Paul Atreides when he finally becomes Maudib, he knows the future. So he views the idea of walking this narrow, specific line saying it has to be like this. But then his son is the opposite. His son says, like, actually, we should it should be like this free thing, like the idea that knowledge balances on the edge of a knife. Like he actually believes that we should be more free flowing. And it seems to be there's this fight, like especially with the honored matrix versus the Benny Jesuit, where it's like Benny Jesuit's the same thing. They believe in the means to an end and that we need to control society and have it be a certain way for it to come out. Meanwhile, the honored matrix are like, fuck that. We're going to rip it all apart again, which is he seems to that's like a focus. Yeah. And I noticed, I noticed you're not very excited about the series too. That was like a thousand word sentence. That was one sentence with no period in it. I'm sorry. I just don't, I'm not a, I'm not a novelist. <laughs> well, and, and remember also that the, you learned that the other monkeys are, are scared poopless and they're running from something even worse. So that kind yeah. of gets revealed that they're, you know, they're like the biggest, yeah. biggest, toughest, meanest people that are coming in. They, they yeah. burn the planet doomed to a cinder. They're knocking everything to pieces. And then you find out, oh, crap, they're running from something even worse. And But they're also bad. They're the bad side of the Bene Gesserit human nature. But I tell you what, though, I would definitely want to date an honored matro once. I'd want to just go out just for a little while. Oh, and what, what a lucky lady that'll be. Brian <laughs> Herbert and Kevin Anderson. I don't think you'd survive the first date. <laughs> kill me. <laughs> just kill me. Just do it fast. We are speaking with Brian Herbert and Kevin, <laughs> uh, Kevin Anderson. Check out their new book, Dune, the Duke of Caladan. It's on sale right now. So check that out. Well, my final sort of just thought here, uh, what do you want to achieve with this uh, sort of resurgence of Dune. Uh, what would you like the audience to take away uh, from what you are, what you're, what, what you're saying? Is there anything specifically that was motivating you uh, that you really want to uh, make sure the audience understands? Well, ultimately we're, we're, we want to expand the audience for Dune. So through the games, through the graphic novels, through the comics, all these things that are happening, there's even merchandising, but we want ultimately to have people go back and read Dune. And, and, I, and I don't want people to think that any of the things being done have diminished the quality of Dune. We're, we're trying not to, but we're also trying to broaden the, the readership because it's right. an incredible book. And people that don't know about Dune, um, it's, it's, just, it's just a loss. I mean, you really, they really have to, have to get to know it. Well, and Dune is, is, I mean, it's just so much a part of my heart and, and Brian's too, that this is, it's our, we're passionate about it. It's our favorite yeah. science fiction novel ever written. And if we can find like, like ways to get more people to read the book, to get the same experience that we did, you know, you know, sort of like going door to door with your little religious pamphlets are going, <laughs> I've heard the good word about Dune. Yeah, I feel I'm doing the same thing. I'm doing the same thing for you. I'm, I'm, I'm extending this. Um, and again, and then the movie should probably do quite a bit for that. The new movie. And, and, and thank you for your enthusiasm. I, I really appreciate it, Henry. That means a lot. You're the first person ever. Thank me for my enthusiasm. Oh, and Henry, thank you for turning Ben and, and Travis in the background there into Dune fans. Maybe they'll read the book now. They got to. Well, right, I'll, I'll definitely listen to him yelling about it, which is how I absorb knowledge. And it all comes through the through the uh, filter of Henry. So I'll get a whole series of things wrong. But, you know, I'll try. I'll be able to sit at a bar and have a conversation about it. So that's all that matters. That's and I will matters. scream the praises of all things Dune. 
Brian, Kevin, thank you so much for being with us today, guys. We really appreciate it. And we are gonna we are gonna move some product. We are moving books. <laughs> All right, there it was, everyone. Our conversation with Mr. Herbert and Mr. Anderson. What a great duo. And it was such a privilege to speak with them. All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed the conversation. Hope you got some knowledge in your brain and maybe even some laughter in your belly and have a wonderful rest of your holiday weekend. Hail yourselves, everyone. We'll chat with you soon. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. For 25 years, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.